50 days of Easter we're going through as a church. We're about two-thirds of the way through that right now. And so just to catch you up, Jesus came. Jesus, God in the flesh, he came. As a baby, he taught, he did miracles, he lived a perfect life, he died the perfect death, and through his death, Jesus paid the wage of sin. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, and now that same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us to raise us to new life, both now and forever. We did nothing to earn it, we did nothing to deserve it, it's a complete free gift of God's grace. That's good news. We were once terminal. We once had an expiration date, but in a single life-transforming moment, we won. Victory over sin, victory over death, our reward, not $10,000, a rich inheritance as sons and daughters of the richest king who's infinitely great. The heart of the Christian faith isn't good advice, it isn't good strategies, it isn't even good behavior, it's good news. And that good news, it's available to everyone. It's available to those with failed dreams, those who have made all the wrong choices. It's available to the corporate executive, the street worker, the celebrity, the farmer, the addict, both former and current, the IRS agent, the used car salesman, the black, brown, white, gray, straight, rich, poor, introvert, extrovert, challenger, peacemaker, Republican, Democrat, American, Russian. That good news is available to everyone. One of my favorite things to do throughout the week is to pick out the songs that we're going to sing on Saturday night. And I usually come in here on Monday, take some time, and I put in the slides so that we got the lyrics. And as I put in those slides, you know, I like the songs ahead of time. But, you know, as I'm typing in the lyrics that we're going to see on the screen, I just get to see the words of those songs. And oftentimes, I tell the band all the time, the songs will help write my sermon a lot more than just about anything else. I'll sit here and I'll have the music playing. I'm putting those words up and those songs just kind of help write the sermon. Here, here's the, the lyrics we just sang. You conquered the grave. You crossed the great divide. Lost in our sin, you made us alive. How can we ever hold it inside? We're never going to stop singing. Saying Hosanna, a, good, a goodie but an oldie, oldie but goodie, what we said. Uh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Literal translation is save us now, but in the New Testament it, it meant salvation has come at last. It's just this, this praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. Then we sing hallelujah. It's an interjection of joy. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. In here, in this room, in church, wherever that may be, we sing these songs. Hosanna, hallelujah. How can we ever hold it inside louder and louder? Then we go out there in life, and we do hold it inside. We hold that good news inside. We don't proclaim it louder and louder. And I want to be careful because I've heard a lot of sermons over the years about what we're talking about tonight, about witnessing the gospel, about sharing the good news with the world out there. And I can smell the agenda. It's about growing their church more than it is about growing the kingdom of God. It's about feeling seats or feeding my ego or increasing my paycheck. So a lot of legalism and false guilt has been used to motivate people to share the good news, which in and of itself diminishes the goodness of the news. And so I don't want to do that tonight. 
Yes, we should care about the eternal concern for the lost. Yes, we should share Jesus because he commands us to love our neighbors. And the most loving thing we could ever do is to share Jesus with them. Knowing how their story ends and how Jesus can change the ending of that story. But we also share because being a witness of Christ, we can taste the flavor of God that we only otherwise smell. Let me explain what I mean. My kids, I think all of them at some various point in time, went to a Montessori school uh, when they were in pre-K. And if you don't know much about Montessori training, it's this whole classroom and it's set up. And really, it's got a lot of concepts. But one of the big fundamental concepts is you learn a skill. And you master that skill. But you haven't truly mastered that skill until you've taken that skill and you've taught that skill to someone else. And in doing that, you learn the skill at an even greater level. As Christians, as we make Christ known to others, Christ then becomes more known to us than he ever has before. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Sharing the gospel with others and worship, they're two different activities, but they both express outwardly the joy that has transformed us inwardly. Both vertical worship with God and horizontal sharing of the good news are overflows of the joy of our communion with God. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and, and read just eight verses tonight. Uh, and we're doing the New Living Translation, if you read along on your phone. And it just begins like this. It's a new book we're going into, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke, who's the writer, begins in my first book. If you're new to church or not aware, the first book was the Gospel of Luke that we were in from Christmas until really just a week or two ago. Luke is the prequel, Acts is the sequel. He says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, we should know who Theophilus is. Theophilus simply means friend of God. And so some people think that Luke is writing this book to a guy named Theophilus, whose name happens to be friend of God. And some people think he's writing it to all believers because we are the Theophilus, we are the friends of God. Either way, Luke says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, friend of God, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, which we're going to talk about next week, after giving his chosen apostles further instruction through the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. We've been talking about that in past weeks. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. He has to tell these guys things lots of times, apparently. Verse 5, he says, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in two weeks, by the way, the Pentecost. Verse 6 says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? My youngest daughter, who was in here earlier, Emery, she's nine years old. We'll be having dinner. We eat dinner together as a family, and we like to have deep conversations sometime with dinner. And so we'll be having this family conversation, kind of going a little bit deep. And Emory out of left field will be like, Jay's grandma 
had a bunion removed this week. <laughs> What's a bunion? And it totally, you know, disrupts what is happening over here because she saw a squirrel and went an entirely different direction. Nothing at all to do with the conversation that we're having. Jesus is trying to tell these disciples something really important in those prior verses. He says, in a few days, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. They have no idea what that means. Any questions should be about that. But instead, uh, so Jesus, when are you going to free Israel? The disciples have saw a squirrel. Verse 7, Jesus replies, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Jesus is ultimately patient with these guys. He's like, focus, stop worrying about things you don't need to worry about. Listen to what I'm trying to tell you. And so he repeats it again. He says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So let's go back. Did you catch what Jesus said before he said, you will be my witnesses, which is to go and tell? Before Jesus said, go and tell, he tells the disciples, go and wait. He says, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift. The gift we know is the Holy Spirit. It's this power. Did a lot of missions trips to the Dominican Republic over the years. Um, we started going. I went on the first trip, and I was a relatively new-ish Christian. And really, I didn't know how to witness to the gospel other than I made decent money, and so I was going to witness the gospel with my checkbook. And so we sponsored, I don't know, 10 or 12 kids in the Dominican on this food program. It was $30 a month or something like that. And so we just said, look, and we're not preachers, we're not pastors, we're not missionaries, but we can, we can sponsor these kids, and that will be a witness to the gospel. And so I go down on the next visit after we decided to do this, and this guy, John Martinez, he's uh, one of the missionaries stationed there in the Dominican Republic. He's like, hey, Brian, I'm there by myself. He's like, good news. We set up a dinner for you with all the families of the kids that you sponsor. You're going to get to meet these families, and if the opportunity presents itself, you know, be prepared to witness to the gospel. Now, most of you don't know me before refuge. A few of you do. But way back in the beginning, when I'm just new in this Jesus thing, talking out loud about my faith was absolutely not something I was comfortable with. You don't have any idea how wild it is, really, truly, that I'm standing here doing this. I remember Karen, the first few times we're in the Dominican, and I finally began to speak out loud. She's like, this is amazing. It never happened before. But I'm still in that stage where I'm, I'm not talking about my faith. I wasn't comfortable with that. After the meal, John Martinez comes up to me. He says, look, I want to take you around and just introduce you to each family and just give you a brief moment to talk to them, to just ask them some questions and, and get to know them a little bit. And I'll be honest, it was really awkward and uncomfortable because here I am, this, this foreigner in a foreign land, and, you know, what's this going to be like? And so I didn't even know what to say. He was going to translate for me. I'm meeting little kids, and so what do you ask a little kid, what's your favorite color? Because uh, I knew these colors in Spanish, and so I just asked each kid, you know, what's your favorite color? This was Sunday afternoon for lunch, so I thought, where'd you go to church today? What's your favorite color, and where'd you go to church? And it went pretty well. The first few families, we got through that, and just basic small talk. Get to this one family, and I asked my question, what's your favorite color? It's red. What's it, rojo or whatever? And I don't know. And then I'll ask my question, you know, did you go to church today? And 
Oh, yeah, yeah, we went to church. I said, where'd you go? Did you go here? Because we were, we were stationed in a church. Did you go here at Goat Ministries? And they're like, no, we went to the Mormon church down the way. Now, again, if you don't know, I grew up as a Mormon. So I'm like, oh, crap. I need to say something here, but I have no idea what to say. I'm supposed to witness to the gospel, but I don't know how to do that. And I'll tell you, it's one of the, the craziest experiences I've ever had. I opened my mouth. It didn't come out in Spanish. I didn't speak in tongues. But I opened my mouth, and these words just came out. And I don't remember the exact words that I said, something about, you know, climbing a ladder to heaven and free gift of grace, something along those lines. But I learned as much as they did because I wasn't aware that those words could come out of my mouth. It was 100% spirit-empowered. It's a cool experience. So here's the thing. If we underestimate the power of the Spirit, we have a temptation to overestimate our own power. If we underestimated the work that the Spirit does in witnessing, we'll overestimate the amount of work that we need to do to bring others to Christ. See, American churches, we tend to focus on our mission to proclaim the gospel in terms of strategies and methods. Somehow Facebook has figured out that I'm a pastor I don't know if they know I'm at church every week or they listen to my conversations, but Facebook now knows that I'm a pastor. And so my news feed is full of ads and articles about stuff and methods and strategies to fill your churches to the brim. Dwayne and I, I told Dwayne I was teaching on this tonight. Uh, He and I first met when we were starting this church, and I think your ministry was about a year or a year and a half old at that time, and a mutual friend connected us together, and he's like the guy out there living out. If I could envision a person living out Acts 1-8 in this community, witnessing to the ends of the earth, including Dunbar, I thought of Dwayne, and I'm having this conversation with Dwayne, and he's talking about trying to raise funds for his ministry because he is a missionary, he needs to be funded. And he said, man, all these pastors that I go talking about too, they, they want charts and they want graphs and they want brochures and they want an itemized account of every day of the week and every hour of the day how I use my time. They want a plan. They want a strategy. They want my methods. I can tell you about methods and strategies. Again, growing up Mormon, they got a witnessing plan. When you are a 19-year-old boy, you do not have a choice but to go somewhere else and witness to the Mormon gospel. My brothers both did this. You get a performance review every month. There's a checklist. How many people have you converted? There's strategies and there's methods to their witnessing. The Jehovah's Witness. I have no idea what their plan is, but witness is in their name and they're everywhere. They obviously have strategies and methods for witnessing. The reason Dwayne and I hit it off is because we agree that to be a missionary of the gospel simply means you need to daily surrender to the Spirit and where the Spirit leads. Far more important than having a plan is relying on a person. And I'm not saying that the Spirit can't work in our planning and in our strategery, but we have to keep our methods and our tools in proper perspective. It's about the power of the Spirit. Jesus gives us that power. And so in these verses, Jesus not only gives us the power we need to witness to the gospel, but he gives us the identity that we need to be his witnesses. See, we often think that to witness is something that we go do. I'm going to go witness to the gospel rather than something that we are. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. 
He's speaking in terms of a future identity. He says, my spirit will come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. It's not you might be my witnesses. It's not you could be my witnesses. It's not, guys, you should be my witnesses. He says, you will be. That's certainty, and it's an identity. By saying his witnesses, he's saying, you belong to me. By saying his witnesses, he says, you witness about me. We don't become witnesses because we engage in the activity of witnessing. We engage in the activity of witnessing because he makes us his witnesses. Michael Goen, he wrote a book, A Light to Nations. He says it like this. He said, we would be mistaken if we, think, if we were to think of Jesus' call to witness as merely one more assignment added to an otherwise full agenda for the people of God. Witness is not one more task among many others. Witness defines the role of this community in this era of God's story and thus defines its very identity. For you grammar nerds in the room, it's the indicative before the imperative. You high school kids, if, if you don't know this and you need it on an SAT, an indicative verb expresses a statement of fact. So an indicative verb would be, the sun is shining, statement of fact. An imperative verb expresses a command, put on sunscreen. And so last week, we looked at the indicative before the imperative when we said, we love Jesus because he first loved us. It's the indicative before the imperative. My witnesses is an indicative. He's saying, you're my witnesses, you're my sheep, you're my disciples, you're my masterpiece, you're my witnesses. The identity comes before the imperative. Witnessing isn't going door to door, putting on your best church smile, asking people, have you met Jesus? It's not going to the gas station, which happened to me before I was a believer. People got off the Jesus bus. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Here they come. They're off the Jesus bus. Son, do you know where you're going to go when you die? I don't know. I'm just trying to get gas. (laughs) Praise the Lord. That's not the witnessing that I see in the Bible. Witnessing isn't just missionaries in Africa. It isn't just Dwayne Jackson. It isn't just those like me called to preach the gospel from the stage, which is a calling. But being a witness for every believer is our identity that Christ gives us. It's the indicative. We've experienced Christ's love first, so then we share Christ's love. We've experienced grace and mercy first, so we share grace and mercy. We witness because Jesus has declared us to be his witnesses. You know, it took a lot of time to unpack that, but it carries some pretty serious implications. Number one... I hope for you that removes a lot of the pressure. Holy Spirit is the one that's going to change people. Jesus has already made us his witness. We just got to open our mouths and speak. Number two means it's more than just opening our mouths. If we are Jesus' witnesses, that means our entire lives then become our witness. There's a phrase, your life may be the only Bible someone will ever read. And it's kind of a cliche kind of statement. But that's kind of true. It's an intimidating thought. That's why we need the Spirit first to be witnesses. Because if our lives are to be our witness, man, we need a lot of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds 
that they may see your life as a witness and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though, you are acu- or though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'm a big fan of Dateline. Usually, you know, they start out and they tell you how this person got murdered and you know it's the husband and they go through all the stuff. It's this guy, this guy, this guy. No, it's the husband. You, we all know it. And so they get to the trial by about the 45-minute mark. I watch a lot of these. So about the 45-minute mark, they get to the trial, and then there's the witnesses. And a good trial, the, the more witnesses they are, the better chance there's going to be a conviction. Usually, the trial does come down to the eyewitnesses. Does their testimony prove innocence or guilt? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are his witness. Whether you want to be or not, that's what he's declared you to be. It's not in doubt. So you'll either be a good witness or a bad witness. So does your life witness to God's mercy? Is the way you treat others a reflection of the grace that you've received? Are the words that come out of your mouth harsh or condescending, or are they full of love? Do you spend more time talking about or complaining about X and Y and Z than you do living like a stranger in a foreign land telling people about Jesus? St. Francis of Assisi supposedly stated this, but I can't prove it or not prove it, but it's preach the gospel often, if necessary, use words. Now, again, as a new believer, I'm like, I don't know who this Assisi guy is, but that's pretty good stuff. And so I was teaching a little Bible study, and I remember saying that over and over, preach the gospel often, if necessary, use words. It's, just, it's the concept we just talked about, our lives being our witness. And then my late friend Jeff Taylor once said to me, no, nah, it's preach the gospel often and use words. I'm like, man, I don't know. What's that mean? He says, no, it's like saying, hey, why don't you call me sometime? If necessary, use a phone. They have to go hand in hand. It doesn't happen. The Bible does say this. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Romans 10.14 says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Or Dwayne Lifton, he's the president emeritus at Wheaton College. He says, it's impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal. We have this word, evangelical. You guys have heard evangelical before. That word does not mean voting block, (laughs) even though we've been pigeonholed kind of into a voting block as, oh, we got the evangelicals on our side. That's not what that word means. Evangelical or evangel is a Greek word from the New Testament. It simply means good news. And so to be evangelical just means we're the people who like to share the good news. That makes evangelizing the act of actually sharing with our words the gospel. And just a quick sidebar, in my opinion, the evangelicals have done kind of a poor job with both our lives and our words lately in doing that. To share the gospel with only our lives and the testimony of the good news, at some point, the gospel, that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus paid for sin, that he rose again, people can't just see that with our lives. It must be spoken. 
And so maybe you're sitting here tonight, and here we go. This is that sermon, you know, to take the gospel, go, go preach to your neighbor, go witness to your neighbor. That's not my gifting. I'm not a preacher. I'm not so good with them, their words. Which, by the way, has never stopped anybody from being a preacher either. I'm living proof of that. So how about, and this is a suggestion, how about then inviting a friend to come to church with you and say, hey, come to church with me, last an hour, it's pretty quick, we'll sing some songs, some guy says something, and then let's go grab dinner afterwards. If you're not comfortable preaching and saying those words like I used to be, that's an alternative for you. But be forewarned, we are not a seeker-sensitive church, if you've ever heard that before. There are specific churches that are geared towards seekers walking in the door off the street. And so they try to put on the right show, and they try to be relevant. They try to do all the things to tear down the barriers so that seeker has the proper experience. We are not a seeker-sensitive church. It's because church, what we're doing right now, this worship gathering, was never called to be relevant. It was never designed for those who didn't know Jesus. A worship service is a gathering of believers to worship God to hear the teaching of God's Word, to fellowship with other believers, to have prayer, and even occasionally a meal of communion. And so when I preach every week, I am focused squarely on feeding sheep. Like Jesus told Peter last week, that's the call of a pastor to shepherd a flock. And so we're not a seeker-sensitive church, but we are a gospel-proclaiming church. And so you can be assured every week, When I preach, I'm not doing my job if somewhere in the sermon you don't hear the gospel. You don't hear about the death and resurrection of the Savior. And if you don't hear that, call me out. You get a free donut for telling me. (laughs) This means, though, if you invite a friend, they are going to hear the gospel. That's why I have it in my message every single week, because they need to hear it and I need to hear it. And that might mean that sometimes, because we've seen it happen, that through a message to believers... A goat turns into a sheep, or a fish becomes a sheep. But the greatest way, besides inviting church and using those words, is to use your words to evangelize to a firsthand account, an eyewitness account of what God is doing in your life. And that's what Luke's doing in in his book here. We see it throughout Scripture, the Samaritan woman that Jesus comes and meets, and they have this conversation. After they have the conversation, she just runs out and tells everybody about the conversation she had with Jesus. She doesn't preach. She just says, I met this guy, and here's what he said to me. Or the man born blind, he's healed by Jesus, and, man, he can't just help but telling people, I've been healed. I was sick. I was lost. Now I'm found. Now I'm healed. I was thinking of Tom Stanick, who's not here this week. He's been doing that a lot. He's been battling cancer, and he's been sharing that story of cancer with anybody who will listen to it. Both the healing, but even if the healing didn't come, how God has walked through him in that journey. And you can pray for Tom because he got a second COVID shot yesterday, and he's sick as a dog today. That's why he's not here tonight. God doesn't need you to sell people on Jesus. He doesn't need you to embellish your story. He doesn't need you to scrub your story clean and take away all the dirt and make it pretty and bow on top and tie up the loose ends. He just wants you to be open and honest with your mouth because there are no bad stories. And you don't have to be at the end of your story thinking, I'm working through this. When I get to the end, I'll share it. Some of the best stories are the cliffhangers where you tell the story and say, this is where I think we're going. People want to hear how the story ends. But I know it can be easy to be intimidated by other people's stories, OPS, other people's stories. 
You know, you hear about that prodigal who grew up in the church, but they left it and they became atheists and they hit rock bottom and they were in the slop and the mud. And finally, Jesus reached in and grabbed them and saved them. And you hear that story, you're like, man, I don't have a story like that. Or the addict who, who every day says, it's only by God's grace that I am sober in here. Or one who was persecuting Christians now becomes a preacher of the gospel. There's, there's all these beautiful stories. And you're like, man, if I had a story like that, my story, it's, it's pretty boring. I grew up going to church. My parents taught me about Jesus. I went to college. I got a job. I had some kids. And I'm still going to that same old church. That's a beautiful story. What a witness to the gospel. Somewhere in that church, you managed to find Jesus and not religion. Through college, the Spirit kept you faithful. You're now raising your kids to know that same Jesus. And you managed to survive a dysfunctional family of misfits and keep coming back week after week. What a beautiful story. God doesn't have some clipboard tallying up all the people that you've saved. How many baptisms you've performed? Man, none. <laughs> well, this person, you don't have a clipboard. It's because you don't save people, Jesus does. You don't convict people, the Spirit does. Our imperative is to witness to the grace of Christ. Our imperative is to witness to the power of Christ bestowed upon our lives. Acts 1.8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. I'm going to end tonight with a story, if that's okay. I like to tell stories. This is a good one. I've had a good week. I got to taste God in a new way through witnessing of the gospel. A few years ago, I got a letter, more a nasty gram, I'll call it, from my bishop, my Mormon bishop. It appears that the church still had me on their records because, look, if you want to find somebody in an apocalypse, go to the Mormons. They'll know where they're at. They, they got records, okay? And I, I'll give you the abridged version of the, the letter from this bishop, this jerk. He says, on Refuge's website, you say that you grew up Mormon, in quotes, and then, quote, left all religion behind publicly suggesting that you no longer identify as a member of the Mormon church unless and until you have your name removed. If friends or neighbors ask you what church you belong to, please be truthful by telling them that you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS. That's the Mormons. He goes on, he says, if a member formally joins another church and advocates its teachings, name removal may be necessary if formal membership in the other church is not ended after counseling and encouragement. He goes on to tell me all the ways they've, they've tried reaching out to me and tried counseling and tried encouragement. And then he ends with this. He says, please make your decision and let me know it unequivocally in writing because a verbal request is invalid per church policy. I wanted to be truthful. I wanted to let him know unequivocally. So I responded. And within my response, I just shared the gospel. And I'll be honest, it's one of the better things I've probably written. And that, again, is the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thought it would be good to share with other people. So I took that letter, and I took his letter, and I took my response, and I posted it online. 
And it kind of went mini viral. I mean, it, it was pretty cool. Now, nothing compared to Yogi's 25 million hits that he's had at this point. <laughs> And nothing compared to my wife's three and a half million that she got on a blog she once wrote that went all over the world. But I had 33,000 people read this, this thing that I posted. And so 33,000 people got to read the gospel because I witnessed to this, this bishop guy. Well, Friday, yesterday, I woke up to a long email. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table and Karen's like, good Lord, who's sending you that this time of the morning? That email had came in at 12.01 a.m. The subject of the email was my departure from the LDS church. Cool. It's a nice email received. It was a response to that thing that I posted online. But it wasn't. It wasn't from the thing that I posted online. It was from that bishop who got the letter. And he said, I left the church. And I told my family. And Four or five kids that I, I have five kids, and four of the fives have now left the church. And I've moved to Tennessee, and I'm exploring a relationship with God and Jesus, and, and I'm getting to know this thing about grace and salvation. And I'm learning that doubt is okay and that belief will come. He even said that he bought some comfortable underwear, which for you, <laughs> I'm glad you all got that because I didn't want to have to try to explain it. Pray for him. He told me it was okay to say his name. I hope he's listening right now because we had a great conversation yesterday back and forth. His name is Daniel Busey, and he's still wrestling. He's not there yet, but he hasn't left everything behind. He's trying to find Jesus of the Bible. He's going to church, so pray for Daniel Busey. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses. That's our identity. That's the indicative. That's our calling. That's the imperative. Every word, every action, every story that we share, every time we overflow with joy, we will be witnesses. Witnesses to the poor, to the powerless, to the lost, to the lonely, to the broken, which is all of us. And so shout it, scream it that he is love, that he is hope, that he is life, that he is God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, for that good news that changes everything. God, don't let us hold it inside, but to profess it with our lives, to profess it with words, to know that we won the greatest lottery to ever face anything, that we've, we've got the greatest gift that mankind has ever known. Don't let us bottle it up, but share it in love and grace. God, we thank you for our lives being transformed by the gospel. God, use us to help transform other lives in your name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand?